Well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Last week we had the privilege of learning about how we should not grumble and complain on uh, our Daylight Savings Sunday. This Sunday we are learning how not to grumble and complain when it's hot and the AC doesn't work. So I think next Sunday we'll stop talking about grumbling and complaining. (laughs) I think that'd probably be the wise thing to do. Last Sunday, we looked at verse 14 of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul gives us a very clear command. It was a very easy sermon in that regard because it's very black and white. Categorically, there is no grumbling allowed. There is no disputing allowed. And you must do that. What a beautiful representation of how to live out and work out our salvation with fear and with trembling When Paul gives us immediately after those verses, in verses 12 and 13, when he says, God's at work in you, and we so often are prone to say, well then, good, I'm off the hook. Paul immediately says, no, you must do all things without grumbling, without disputing. Why? Well, we looked a little bit at why last week. We looked at why based on the context Because those who are grumbling and complaining about their circumstances are those who think that they deserve better. Those who think that this is not what I deserve. This is not what should be happening to me because I'm better than that. And that obviously doesn't fit with what Paul's been saying in Philippians chapter 2. We must consider others as more important than ourselves and we must esteem, esteem ourselves lowly. Do not just look for your own personal interests. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus utterly humiliated and never saying, I deserve better. The people that grumble and dispute against God are those who say, I deserve better. I deserve better than this. And we looked at Lamentations chapter 3 last week where it says that those who grumble and complain against God are doing so because they are not looking at their sinful condition. If we look at our sinful condition, we realize that we Whatever we get, whatever cards we are dealt in this life are better than we deserve. They're better than we deserve. Vain glory, empty conceit, esteeming yourself more highly than you should leads to grumbling and disputing. We looked last week at the command, and we don't have too much time to spend in review, but just for the sake of those who weren't here and just for the sake of context, A little bit of review would be helpful. In verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's all we got to last week. And we just simply defined those two words, grumbling and disputing. What does it mean to grumble? We looked at grumbling as an onomatopoetic word. It sounds like what it really is, similar to murmuring. It is sounding like what it truly is. And defining it would be, as follows, it's muttering in a low voice as a sign of displeasure, sometimes speaking only to yourself, sometimes whispering that to others. But grumbling is whispering and speaking out against your circumstances or against people. God hears our grumblings against himself. We saw that the only other time that Paul uses this word grumbling is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he is speaking of the Old Testament Israelites grumbling in the wilderness over their circumstances, their lack of food, their lack of water. 
And that attitude is clearly forbidden in Scripture, and it is clearly detested by God himself. He hears our grumblings as grumblings against himself, because if we are grumbling against our circumstances, we are grumbling against the sovereignty of God. We grumble against his sovereignty. We complain, we murmur, and we become God's judge in essence and say, I have a better plan than you have for my life. We saw how God responded to grumbling in Numbers chapter 14. We're going to look at it a little bit more this morning so we don't have to turn there. Secondly, we saw we should do nothing from disputing or do everything without disputing. Grumbling is complaining about your circumstances and whispering that to others Disputing is a word in the Greek. You guys know it. It's our word dialogue. It's dialoguing with God. It's arguing with God. So it's a mental dialogue that ultimately calls God into question and says, God, how can these things be so? Grumbling is to be dissatisfied and discontent with your circumstances. Disputing is to direct that dissatisfaction against God by calling him into question. Grumbling typically is an emotional response to bad circumstances and bad things happening. Disputing is an intellectual response to bad things happening. And we looked at several passages that detail how we are to live in light of God's sovereignty without grumbling, without disputing, without murmuring, without complaining, without whining, and without um, speaking out against God, calling him into question. That was the what of last week. And I encourage you, if you want to know more about that for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to do more review, but go ahead and listen to that message online that details the what. What is grumbling? Why is it so wrong? Why is it so evil? What is disputing and why is it so evil? Why does God hate it? But this morning, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18 and see the why. The what of grumbling and disputing has been answered for us. But why, Paul? We looked at one of the why reasons last week. Because it goes against what Paul has commanded us to do in esteeming others is more important than ourselves and having a lowly, humble attitude in mind and of heart. But there are three reasons, and I told you last week there would be three reasons, and I don't know if you were able to go and find them. They're laid out for us pretty clearly in the text, and as we go through it, I pray that you will see these three motivations that Paul gives for not grumbling, for not disputing. Three motivations. He starts in verse 15 by saying, so that. That's why we know these are motivations. These are reasons. If you say, Paul, why should I obey verse 14? He says, verse 15, so that. Here's why. Here's the motivation. Here's the reason. So that. Number one. uh, We'll give it the heading for your own sake. Do not grumble and do not complain. Do not murmur or dispute or argue against God. Number one, for your own sake, he says it in verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. That you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Paul says, you stop grumbling, stop complaining, because as you argue and as you dispute, you are calling into question who you truly serve, who you truly follow, who truly is your Lord and your master. So stop doing it for your own sake, for your own, we could say, your own assurance. Because as you live out this command of not grumbling and not disputing, you prove yourselves to be something. 
What is the something? First, Paul uses the word blameless. You prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Blameless. The word blameless in all but one of the places in the New Testament that this word is used refers to how others would see us. This really makes logical sense. If I am complaining, my wife sees that and has an opinion of how I live my life based on my words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew twelve thirty four. So we know that the heart is evidenced through what we say. So if we are speaking out against God's sovereignty in circumstances and in situations and saying, we should be the judge, you aren't doing things rightly, it proves something about our heart. So, in the opposite realm, if we are not grumbling, not disputing, then others will look at us and we'll see in that area of our lives, nothing at fault, nothing wrong. This word has others' view of us in mind, meaning nothing can be pinned upon you. No wrong can be pinned upon you. You are above reproach in the eyes of others around you. Paul uses this word another place in Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 6. We'll get here in a couple weeks, but Philippians chapter 3, verse 6 Paul says, as he's listing out all of uh, the things that he has done well in life, his list of achievements and how amazing he has lived his life apart from God, and then ultimately he's going to say none of those things matter before God. Those can't earn righteousness. He says in verse 6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found what? Found blameless. That's the word there. Nobody can pin anything on me. Now, Paul himself will know And he will admit that he is a sinner through and through. So he's not saying he is sinless. That's why he doesn't use the word sinless. He uses the word blameless. There is sin going on in his heart, but by God's grace, it doesn't manifest itself uh, in habit, in practice, uh, in externals outwardly. He's found blameless. Nobody could pin anything on him. You can't look at him and say, Paul, I saw you murder somebody yesterday. Um even though uh, he was a murderer, um, the, the reality is before the law, he was doing what he thought was right. And so everybody would look and say, you are living according to the law. The beauty of the gospel says, none of our righteousness derived from the law produces any good standing before God. That's what he's going to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, which is my personal favorite verse in describing and relaying the gospel to others. I do not have a righteousness derived from the law. I cannot earn righteousness by my doing. I have a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of my own. So Paul says, look, before the law, I was never doing anything that others could pin upon me. And therefore, I was blameless. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, if you do not grumble and you do not dispute, you will be blameless. Others won't pin wrong things on you. They can't pin actions against you and they can't pin words against you. You are blameless. He uses a second word, innocent. If blameless is how others view you, innocent is how you would view yourself. You know yourself better than others know you. And innocent speaks uh, to the idea of being unmixed or pure. This word is used in secular, extra-biblical Greek to speak of unmixed wine or pure metals that don't contain other alloys in them. Unmixed, wholly devoted, truly living out what others see you to be. So Paul says, if you don't grumble and you don't dispute, you will 
prove yourselves to be to yourself what others see you as. Blameless and innocent. Blameless is what others see. Innocent describes who you really are. And then he uses one final character quality. He says, you will be blameless, innocent, and lastly, children of God above reproach. You'll be children of God above reproach. This word never has reference, above reproach, never has reference to our own perspective of us, which is what innocent is, to others' perspective of us, which is what blameless is. It always refers to God's perspective of us. And that, in totality, is everyone who's watching. Everyone around you will see you to be blameless. You yourself will see that you have integrity, that you are who you claim to be, and God sees you that way as well. Everyone who is watching sees that man or that woman trusts in God, rests in God. They claim to follow the God of the universe. They claim to follow the God who sent the stars in motion and made the galaxies and knows every single number of hairs that are upon our heads And yet when we say, yeah, but I don't think he understands what I'm going through, and I think he's doing something wrong right here, well, do you really believe what you claim to believe? Is your profession only that, merely words? Or is it truly your character? Is it truly who you are through and through? Paul uses this word above reproach in another setting in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, You can just write these down. We don't have enough time to go to them. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he uses the word above reproach. And it's the same word here for above reproach. It's actually translated blameless. That's why you might be confused when you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. But we were called to be blameless. And he specifically says, in the sight of God. Which again, that's what above reproach means. Blameless in the sight of God. Ephesians chapter 5 says the same thing in verse 27. We are supposed to have no spot or wrinkle. Christ died to cleanse his bride so that he would present her blameless, holy. Same Greek word here for above reproach. In God's sight, above reproach and blameless. So Paul says, you will prove yourselves to be. You are tested. You are being tested and you will come out of the testing proving what your character truly is. Isn't that the goal of trials in view in James chapter 1? The testing of your faith produces things. And one of the many things that it produces is assurance as you live out humble contentment before God. Paul says, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. And then he says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation... And he is alluding here from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I want to go there just briefly. Deuteronomy chapter 32. We weren't able to go here last week. We went to Numbers. We went to Exodus. But I want you to see the way that Paul is referring to those of us who would not grumble, who would not complain, who would not dispute or argue against God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 3. This is Moses writing. It's a song of Moses as he's recounting everything that's gone on in the wilderness wanderings. When God, before, before that, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is Moses as he's about to die. And he is looking back on how God has worked. And he says this in verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3. I proclaim the name of the Lord. 
ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All of his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. That is who our God is. So anybody who speaks out against him is forgetting who he is or is ultimately calling God a liar. So Moses says, this is who our God is. And then verse 5, they, the Israelites, have acted corruptly towards him. They're not his children because of their defect. But instead, they're perverse and crooked generation. You see the words that Paul uses. You are blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's interesting. The Old Testament was written in what language? In Hebrew and Aramaic. And it was translated into Greek. And we call that what? Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word in verse 5 that my Bible translates defect. It's very interesting because that word defect is the same Greek word that Paul uses when he says above reproach. Only he puts the little alpha in front of it, like theist versus atheist. He puts the alpha to negate it. And he says they are not above reproach. That's the word there, defect. You are not above reproach. And when you put that little alpha there, it says this is what you should be, but we're going to negate it because of the what's called an alpha privative. We're going to negate it. Moses says instead of being above reproach, they were the exact opposite. They were not above reproach. And instead of being above reproach, they were a perverse and crooked generation. And because of all of those things, Moses says frightening words. He says they are not God's children. They are not God's children. Wow. Moses, they're not God's children simply because they complain, because they murmur, because they have dialogued with God and called him into question. It's because grumbling reveals a much deeper and more serious issue it revealed in the Old Testament Israelites and in our hearts as well. If it is characteristic of us, if this is always what we do and always what we turn to, and it's our habit and our practice to grumble and dispute God, it reveals ultimately unbelief across the board. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 19 say exactly that. That the people of Israel were not allowed to rest, enter the rest of God, not just the promised land, a physical territory, but the ultimate rest of God in heaven because they were not his children, because they were children of unbelief and not children of the Father. Why is that? Well, Hebrews eleven six defines for us why unbelief is so uh, heinous before the Lord. You know the beginning of that verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you must have faith to believe. But what must you believe? Two things that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. You must believe that God exists, that he is. Oh, the demons believe that. A lot of people believe that God exists. But that's not all pleasing and saving faith is. Believe that he exists, and secondly, and believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. An Old Testament Israelite would say, well, we followed God. 
and he's not giving us what we thought we were going to get. So it's better to follow the Egyptians. Remember we talked last week, sin makes you so stupid that you would say, we had free steak dinners in Egypt. And now we have to work to get the manna off the ground and the quail. Oh, that we would, were back in Egypt where everything was free. Um, do you forget you were slaves? Not exactly free. And so God says, you are not my children because you were ultimately saying, I do not follow through on my promises. If characteristically, this is true of you, that whatever comes in your life, you constantly run back to God and say, you're not doing what you should be doing. And this can't be right. And I deserve better. If that is characteristic of you, if that is your habit and your practice, then I think Paul would say this morning, examine your heart. Who really is your father? Because if you are not grumbling and you are not complaining, then you prove yourself to be a child of God. But the opposite of true is true. If you are grumbling and you are disputing and that is a pattern of your lifestyle, then you prove yourself to not be a child of God. Maybe God's a genie to you, and when you don't get what you thought you were getting, you despise him and you turn to another idol, another genie. Now, I need to say one word of caution to all of us who love the Bible, all of us who love Jesus, and all of us who love each other that would desire that we all live in obedience. Who are those who are most prone to grumbling? And, and when are we most prone to grumbling? Is it when life is just going super well? No, it's when life is going very, very difficult. And things are hard. I, I want to plead with Christ Bible Church to remember two passages. And you can write these down. I think we should remember these verses. First is Job 6.26. When somebody around you is going through hard times and they say, how can this be? What is God doing? And I don't know whether I can trust him. In the moment, in that moment, when suffering is happening, and I'm not just talking about 90 degrees outside and the AC is broken. I'm talking about when a mother finds out that uh, the cancer that she thought she had beat is back and is terminal. I'm talking about when a father finds out that his son died in a tragic car accident. When we are in the midst of suffering and we have a knee-jerk response to say, God, are you good? I want to trust you. I know that you're good, but I'm struggling here. That's not the time for us Bible-believing Christians to say, how dare you grumble? How dare you dispute God? You know better than that. Shape up. Job 6.26, Job asks his friends, why do you reprove my words? Why do you rebuke my words when the words of a despairing man are but wind? They're going to be gone and maybe years from now I will come back and I will say, you know when I was second-guessing the goodness of God? You know when I was struggling to believe that He's in control? I was wrong. And He has proven again His trustworthiness. He's proven again His faithfulness. They'll come back. They will say that. 
If they are children of God, they will come back and say that. There may be a time after the suffering is over to plead with somebody, trust in the Lord if they are struggling with that. But please, can we remember not only Job 6.26, but also 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We admonish the unruly. Go to bat with them. If they are saying, I know this is sin, I don't care that it's sin, and I want to sin anyway, you don't say, okay, we'll let you go ahead. You admonish them. But you do not admonish the faint-hearted. You encourage the faint-hearted. And usually, those that are struggling with grumbling and disputing against God are in a faint-hearted season of life. So don't admonish faint-hearted people. Encourage faint-hearted people. If you admonish faint-hearted people, you are wrong. Because the Bible says admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and in all of those things be patient with everyone. Let wind words be wind words that fly away as they cling to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And don't feel that you have to rebuke every single word if they are struggling with grumbling and disputing. Make sense? I want us to encourage each other in obedience. But the best way to do that is not in the moment saying, hey, God is good, God is sovereign, get your act together. The best way to encourage obedience is before suffering happens, build with a tedious amount of work and discipline Build a foundation and an arsenal of weapons against unbelief before the storm comes. We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. So, first, motivation. Why should we not grumble and not dispute? Why should we do everything that we do without grumbling and without disputing? Number one, for our sake to prove what our profession truly is and that it is right, that it is true, that it is genuine, to prove ourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. For ourselves and for our own assurance. Secondly, Paul would say the second motivation is for others. Don't grumble, don't dispute, do everything without those two things for the sake of others, specifically for the sake of non-believers, but we can throw Believers in there as well, and again, we'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. But here specifically, Paul has in mind non-believers. Do everything without grumbling and do everything without disputing, because in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you will shine as lights in the world. End of verse 15. My Bible says, whom you appear as lights in the world. Literally, it's you will shine as lights in the world. You will shine forth. Paul says you are in the midst of a crooked generation. Crooked refers to something that if you lay a ruler or a straight edge next to it, it will obviously be crooked. You can obviously immediately tell that's not straight because this is the straight edge and it is straight. Perverse means it's a stronger, more intensified word that means something that's terribly distorted, terribly twisted. So crooked is it has a curve in it. It's obviously not straight. Perverse is it's twisted, it's deformed, it's distorted. And in both of those cases, it's obvious that they are crooked, that they are distorted, because the straight, the straight edge, the ruler, is God's word. And when you measure this world against the word of God, we obviously see it comes far, far short. We do as well. We all fall short of the glory of God. And Paul says, you will shine. I, I hear 
I hear people say a lot, and I totally understand the sentiment. My, my own, I have a great fear of raising my daughter and, Lord willing, my son in this day and age, in this generation. Uh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I understand people who say this, but at the same time, I want to encourage your hearts. People say, man, things are just getting so bad around here. Take me home. I don't want to be here. I don't want to go out. I don't want to be a part of this. This is so awful and I cannot believe it. And there's almost a certain sense of reservation of pulling back and I don't want to, I don't want to be here. And I want to submit to you that our job becomes a lot easier when it's darker out in the world. Because it's obviously shining for us so much more brightly if we are shining the exact same amount when it's daylight. Flash, you won't be able to see a flashlight during the, the noonday sun. When the sun goes down and it is pitch black, then we can see, oh, that's the truth. And so, again, I totally understand the sentiment. I totally agree that it is just terrible out there. But that makes the spotlight of God's truth and His holiness all the more bright, all the more beautiful. And those who see it for what it truly is, oh, the scales will fall off. The scales will fall. They, they won't be looking going, well, Christianity and the Bible is very similar to this and very similar to this. And it's not really, if I live for the Lord, my life's not really going to be that different. Oh, no, it's going to be radically different than the world. Radically different. So Paul says, shine, shine, shine as light in the world. You say, well, Paul, how do I do that? You do it in verse 16 by the modifier, the participle that he puts there. You do it by holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. Say, Paul, I want to shine. And he would say, there's two ways you shine. You shine, number one, by not grumbling and not disputing. And you do that, number two, by holding fast the word of life. Literally, this is the gospel, holding fast the word which is life. Literally, which is life. Paul says, you cling to that. And the world will see you shine. Because when trials come... Your heart, though desiring to be anxious and fret like a natural fleshly response to difficult circumstances would be. Your heart says, oh, be still my soul. Trust in the Lord and bless his name. I will have joy in the midst of trials. I will rejoice in the midst of persecution. That will shine. But specifically, as you hold fast the gospel, that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. This, isn't, this suffering isn't proving to me that either God is indifferent or he doesn't care. This suffering is proving that God cares all the more because he tests those and he sends those that he loves through trials so that they become conformed in the image of his son. Paul says, hold fast. The phrase, hold fast the word, which is life, there's a little bit of a technicality there, and I actually like the technicality. It could either mean hold tightly to the gospel, the word of God, the word of life, or there is a possibility that this phrase could mean hold forth the gospel, hold it out for people to see. And if I can just take the easy road on this one, because it's not expressly clear, I think it's totally both. Because you can't hold forth with power that which you are not holding fast to and clinging to yourself. So Paul says, hold fast, hold, cling to the word of life. 
and then hold it forth for all to see. Do that in evangelism. Do that in caring for your neighbors. Do that in caring for those who are suffering around you. Hold tightly to and then put forth that hope that you have in God. D.A. Carson says it this way, Christian contentment stands out in a selfish, whining, self-pitying world. As Christians hold out the word of life, there must be no trace of self-pity, but a life characterized by sincere gratitude and by godly praise. And Paul says when we do that, we will shine. Oh, we will shine. Oh, that God would make Christ's Bible Church a place that in the midst of suffering, we would weep with those who weep. We would mourn with those who mourn. We would together hold fast the word of life and hold forth the word of life to say, this is not the end. This pain will go away. And I have a hope steadfast and secure in heaven. Paul says, let your light shine. Similar to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine. Matthew chapter 7. Shine forth. Um, There are ways that we do that and we're going to tie this all together at the end. First, motivation that Paul gives us is do this for your own sake. Do not grumble. Do not dispute for your own sake. Secondly, do not grumble or dispute for the unbelievers around you, for the sake of others around you. And thirdly and finally, do this for the sake of your shepherds and leaders. Do not grumble and do not dispute for the sake of your shepherds and your leaders. He says, holding fast the word of life, verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I, now he's bringing himself into the mix, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. That phrase, in the day of Christ, is the last day, the day when we will appear before God and we are judged, not judged on the basis of whether we're going to heaven or to hell, but judged um, knowing we are going to heaven on the basis of how we lived our lives to glorify the Lord. It's in Second Corinthians chapter 5. It's not a judgment unto salvation or to damnation. It's a judgment for rewards. It's a judgment unto, uh, unto rewards. And Paul says, I want to be rewarded, not because he wants the rewards, but he wants to give God the maximum, maximum amount of glory he possibly can. And so he says, I don't want at the end of the race to find out that I ran in vain. What a great analogy. Uh, vain could be translated empty-handed. I don't want to run. Uh, let's throw him into a marathon because that makes it more fun. Um, because honestly, if I'm, if I'm running a you know, 100, 100 meter, like 40 yard dash, you know, oh, I'm, I didn't win. Oh, well, that was like, that was it. That's all it was in my lifetime. But a marathon, man, if I find out something disqualified me in a marathon, that'll wreck my day for a while. Um, let's say he's running a marathon and he runs and he runs as hard and as fast as he can and he gets to the finish line and at the finish line, he is first in line. The tape's still up and all the blood, sweat and tears of training and running, he crosses the tape, he crosses the finish line and he says, I did it. I'm first place. And then somebody says, oh, I'm so sorry, but uh, you're wearing the wrong pair of shoes and and your shirt's backwards, so you're disqualified. Then, when he goes home, and his family says, what did you win? Well, let's see your prize. He's empty-handed. I didn't, I didn't get a trophy. I didn't get a, a crown. I didn't get a wreath. I didn't get it. I'm empty-handed. That's the idea here. I don't want to finish the race 
and then find out that I have nothing to show for it. Nor do I want to toil, which is a word you know. It means working to the point of exhaustion. I don't want to fall flat as I'm crossing the finish line and then realize all of that running, all of that toiling, all of that agonizing has been done in vain. Oh, I don't want to do that. How would that happen? How would he find out he has run in vain? If the people that he poured his life into ultimately say, we don't really believe this. We don't believe God's sovereign. We don't believe he's good. We don't believe he's trustworthy and we're going to do our own thing. So sorry, Paul. Thanks for your time. Nothing. No disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. How depressing would that be? And he says, I don't want to find that out. And I will find that out. I will find out that I have run in vain if I find out that you are consistently, constantly grumbling and disputing because that proves you're not a child of God. And so he says, oh, please, don't grumble and don't dispute for my sake. And I would say to us, for the sake of the shepherds or leaders that are in your life, if you've been a Christian for long at all, you are in serious debt to those people around you who have invested their life and their time and their energy and their influence in your life. Maybe it's parents, maybe it's friends, maybe it's a um, discipler who has come alongside and mentored you in the faith. If there's anybody in your life that's done that for you, then don't grumble and don't dispute because you'd be contradicting every single amount of energy and effort that they desired to place into you the truth of God's word. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Because I want to have reason to glory, not in myself, but I want to have reason to glory in God that he perfected what I started. I started preaching to you. He began that work. He perfected it in you. I want to see that. You say, man, this is challenging. Can anybody do this? How can you do this? Paul, how can you do this? I understand I should do this for my own personal assurance, for my own sake. I understand I should do this for the sake of all who are around me. I understand I should do this for my shepherds and my leaders and those who have discipled me. But is this really possible? Is this one of those you're just aiming so high and nobody can attain it? Finally, in verse 17, he gives us the example. And the example is himself. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. What's he referring to? He's referring to the suffering that he is going through right now. His own circumstances. He is in prison. He could potentially be killed. He will actually use this metaphor in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, the only other time we find this metaphor of uh, an offering or a sacrifice. And that's when he is about to be killed. When he knows he's not going to be released and his head is going to be chopped off. What's the analogy? Let's get inside this metaphor. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And to be most specific, that phrase should be the sacrificial service of your faith. So uh, let's let's put this in an imagery for us. The Philippian church uh, are the, the priests. Okay, they're priests. They're walking around in their priestly garb in this metaphor. And they are placing on the altar to be burned, to be sacrificed. What are they placing? They're placing their service of faith. They're placing their works. They're placing their desire to share the gospel, to uh, equip the saints, to evangelize the lost. They're putting all of their 
um, godly effort onto the altar. And they're lighting it on fire and saying, God, use it as you will. Paul says, I'm a drink offering upon that. This is, uh, you'd have to go all the way back to Numbers 15 to see what this is a reference to. But as a burnt offering was being burned, the offering was not complete until they put basically an exclamation point on it. And they would pour either wine or oil on the offering to create a good smell, a good pleasing aroma. It would represent prayers ascending to the Lord um, on behalf of the people. And so the priest would have to find the animal, um, see, make sure it has no blemish, it's spotless, um, kill the animal, skin the animal, get the animal ready to be burned, burn the animal, and then wait until that animal has been burning long enough that when they pour the water, they pour the wine, they pour the oil, when it hits, it instantly sizzles and evaporates. I love how Paul says, oh, I'm only the drink offering. Again, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, don't worry if I die, you keep on doing this, whether I'm absent or whether I'm present. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, don't worry if I die, you keep on living out your salvation with fear and trembling, even if I die, it's okay because God's the one doing it. Same thing here. He says, who's doing the majority of the work here? You, Philippian church, you're like the priests, and you're the ones that are figuring out how to live, living that way, admonishing each other, encouraging each other, making sure you're living in a godly manner. You're doing all of that. And my ministry to you is only just the last little bit of uh, drink offering on top of that. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But I want to join you as you are ministering to the glory of God. And if you grumble and if you dispute, you pull that sacrifice off of the, uh, off of the altar. You pour it off and you, you pull it off and you say, I don't want that up there anymore. And therefore, my drink offering will be invalid. It won't make sense. But you say, Paul, how do you live this way? He says, oh, I'm in prison and I'm rejoicing. It's okay. You can do it. You can do it. I'm in prison and I am rejoicing. I could die and I'm happy. Why? Well, because death would be gain. I'm in prison and I'm hearing that the Philippians around you are preaching out against me, right? Envy and strife, jealousy. They're preaching against me and they're trying to malign me. I don't care what then. Only that if Christ in every way is proclaimed, I will rejoice. Why? I live as Christ and I want other people to know Christ. So he says, I can do it and I have done it. So verse 18, you too, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, please rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me. So he says, here's the motivation. Do it for yourselves. Do it for your own personal assurance. Do it for the sake of those unbelievers who are around you. Do it for the sake of your shepherds and your leaders. That they would not have run in vain. And if you ever think, oh, this is impossible. Look to me because I'm doing it myself in prison. Look at all the things that are going wrong around me. I rejoice. And I'm pleading with you. Rejoice too. Rejoice with me. He's going to give us more examples uh, next week in the following verses. But in conclusion, I just want to ask our own hearts three questions. They're really three statements to examine our own lives. Question number one or statement number one. Um, examine your life right now. Two 
appropriately apply this message to our lives, I think we have to sit and I think we have to simmer, as it were, in the truth of God's word and figure out, okay, what's really going on in my life? Examine your life right now. Number one, examine your life right now. What circumstances are you going through right now that would present you with the choice to either trust God's sovereignty or dispute against it? And I think if you thought long enough, every single one of us has an option before us this day. Every single one of us. What's the opposite of grumbling in this case? Instead of grumbling and disputing, the opposite would be to choose joyful contentment and believing in God's promises. And ultimately, that's where Paul's going at the end of the letter. That's what I love about this section of the letter. Rejoice with me. You can do it. Don't kick against God's sovereignty. Embrace it. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. And guess what? I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. Because the Lord gives me the strength to do that. That's where he's going in this letter. And only then will we be able to live out First Peter where he says to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The light that shines is when grumble-free people go through suffering and are content. So first, let's examine our lives and ask where, where is there a possibility, where is there a likelihood, where is there a choice and a chance that I could either grumble here and dispute against God, or I can choose joy and satisfaction in Christ and rest in Him. I encourage you, talk with somebody after this message. Talk with somebody, family, friends, go, go out to lunch and put this out on the table so you can say, please pray for me, please encourage me, please hold me accountable. Do the same with your leaders and your shepherds. Go back to them, whether it's at a Bible study, whether you need to pick up the phone, go back and say, I'm going to trust in God's sovereignty so that I will make sure you didn't run in vain. I will make sure that you are toiling with purpose. So examine your life right now and ask that question. Number two, a second statement of application. Examine your mindset regarding suffering. Examine your mindset regarding suffering. First, examine your life right now to figure out, is there a way that I can apply this right now? Is there a way I'm struggling with this right now? But secondly, examine your mindset regarding suffering. What is it that you believe about suffering? Far too often, confessing Christ to so many Christians is just a force field against trouble, when in fact it's really just the opposite. The battle doesn't begin until we confess Christ as Lord. Some Christians feel that when they come to Christ, the rest of their lives are just going to be Disneyland. Just roses from this point forward. If I confess Christ, every day is Friday. When the reality is for believers, based on God's word, if you confess Christ, every day is Friday, but it is Good Friday because you are called to take up your cross and deny yourself and die and live for Jesus alone. Remember the parable in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Wise is the man who hears the words and builds his house upon the rock. Why? So that the storm doesn't come? No, the storm's still coming. You don't build your house upon the rock. You don't get saved. You don't live out obedience to the Lord so that you do not enter into trials or suffering. You do it knowing the trials and suffering are coming. We board up the windows. We board up the 
the windows and we, the doors and we sandbag the house because we know the hurricane of suffering is coming. We don't build on the rock thinking because I'm on the rock, it'll ward away the suffering. It'll ward away the rain. Again, the opposite is true. John 16, Jesus promises tribulation in this life, right? In this life, you will have tribulation. He promises that to us. But what does he say? Take courage. Take heart. I've overcome the world. We know that building on the rock does not mean that we are safe, but we know that once we are built on the rock of Jesus Christ alone, even if the storm comes and kills us, it can never hurt us. And we will live, and we will be at rest with our Savior. So examine your mindset regarding suffering. Do you see it as something that only comes from the devil's hand, or do you see it as something that God might allow you to go through and uh, ordain you to go through and choose for you to go through for your good? What's your mindset regarding suffering? A great book on this would be Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, and I would encourage it to you. Um, Biblical as all of his books are. Thirdly, finally, not only examine your life right now, not only examine your mindset regarding suffering, but finally, number three, make it your goal to shine forth Christ in whatever circumstance you're in. Make it your goal. Make it your aim. Make it the purpose of your life to shine forth Christ in whatever circumstance you are in. Grumblers don't make Jesus look great. Everybody in the world grumbles. Grumbling's an easy thing to do. Grumblers don't say, oh, I have a reward in heaven and Jesus is all I need. Grumblers say, well, Jesus is great, but I need something else to be satisfied. Will you this morning look at the circumstances that you are in and plead with the Lord, whatever they are, God, show me how to show you forth. Show me here how to trust you and present you in a way to a lost and dying world that will give hope that they will ask, how can you be joyful in the midst of this trial? doesn't mean it's painless. doesn't mean it's easy. But it means now you have a purpose. How can I use whatever circumstance I am in to show Jesus forth as valuable? And by the way, just a side note, it works on the other, on the other side too. When everything is going well for you, when life could not be better in your mind, and the world comes up and says, you have everything. Say, oh, it's not because I have this and this and this and everything you think I have. I could lose it all tomorrow and I will still rejoice because I have Jesus. And yes, because I have him, I have everything. I have everything. Father, I pray that you would do that work in us. And even as we pray to you right now, we pray to you and we pray not only with our lips, not only with our hearts, not only through a song, but we plead with you with our very souls. Work in us and take our lives And use them however you desire. We build our lives upon you, the rock. And we know that that means storms are going to come. But we will not fear. And we will rest. And we will trust. And we will not grumble. And we will not argue. But we will be still. We'll be pleased to work that contentment, joyful contentment in our hearts, even now as we sing. We pray it in your name. Amen.